Shelton joining you or you're joining me rather for another hour of podcasting greatness here on YouTube, uh, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio and wherever other good podcasts are sold. And as you can see, I am joined this week by my good friend and uh, ever awesome guest, John Atak. So John, welcome to my show. Right, and welcome to my show as well. Isn't this wonderful? We do a show in tandem. (laughs) I know, I Um, love it. Yeah. Excellent. And this, uh, this is somewhere on number 25. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, the playlist is so long losing now. Count, you know, exactly. Losing count. Well, it's gotten so. to the point now where we pretty much are just having a conversation and we hit record. Hmm. I mean, yeah. it's kind of what, we're doing, what we've been doing for a while now with this. And, and in fact, uh, for today, we'll intro this, guys, by saying that we were having a pre-show conversation about critical thinking. And, of course, this hmm. is near and dear to my heart as it is to, you know, the heart of all thinking people (laughs) and and critical thinking is important stuff. And I have said um, in the past that um, that I believe in a way critical thinking is an antidote to cults and cultic behavior. And and John and I have had some disagreement on this and we were talking about that. And then John suggested, hey, let's go live. And I went, you know what, let's do it. So here we are continuing that conversation. Hmm. So I, I, you know, and I apologize that um, I, I've ruffled your feathers and I yes. understand yes, yes. how. But I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. Um, what happened was I, I was uh, having a conversation with the wonderful Sarah Edmondson and um, out of nowhere and for no reason whatsoever, <laughs> um, I pointed out that, that you in a, a conversation you had with Sean Atwood, yes. um, which we won't get into, <laughs> no. um, had said that, and he was asking you for something, you know, at the end of the show to just round things up. And and you said, cults are the antidote. Uh, sorry, you can go the wrong way around. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, critical thinking is the antidote to cults. Yeah. And I sort of went, well, I, I don't actually believe that. Yeah. And um, that, you know, has, has led us into a little thorny patch. And uh, because... You know, we're good friends and all of that. I, you know, I can ask to be forgiven, and and we can we can actually talk about if if you could pretty much say what you've just said to me. Oh, which absolutely! Is why critical thinking is as a term is is so important to you? Why why you know how you know this life saving force for you? So yes. Tell us tell us all about that. Uh, excellent. Let me that. yes. Let me pontificate. Um, <laughs> I, well, I am big on yeah, I am big on critical thinking and 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 I and I use it as an umbrella term for for a lot of stuff. So let me be clear about this because um, critical thinking for me is not just a matter of you know knowing some logical fallacies or understanding how debate or rhetoric work. That's not that's not that, that that's the very surface most surface level use of 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 what I call critical thinking. Um, you know, it's a discipline, and I have used this discipline um, purposefully, not purposefully, I mean, intentionally, and not at first. At the the first significant time I I engaged in it was while I was still a Scientologist, and I was questioning the conspiracy theories that we were surrounded by, and that I was literally using to recruit new Scientologists, new Sea Org members. I would go on this whole roll, do this whole briefing. I had this whole picture of of this international conspiracy and I could map it out. I drew pictures. I, I, I used whiteboards. I was, I was really into it. 
Oh, I wish I'd say not. I know. It was, it was impressive. So impressive. David Icke, Alex Jones, James Corbett. Oh, yeah. All in there. That's right. Oh, we, I, I had video clips of Ike and Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. I, we would have them watch a whole DVD about from Alex Jones. Anyway, debunked we'd, all we'd of that. We'd probably have millions of followers if we did this. I know. <laughs> I know. That's what's so funny. So I, um, anyway, debunked that for myself with critical thinking, just sort of questioning, just asking some questions. And, and, and if I was really going to reduce critical thinking down to a core statement, it is be willing to ask questions, be willing and able to ask questions. You know, if there was, if there's anything that's going to get you there, it's going to be that. And, and by asking questions, I was able to start looking at information that I had previously not been able or willing to look at that debunked. The conspiracy theories and then suddenly oh wait a second if this is true then this can't be true and that means this can't be true and before you know it like a pack of dominoes you know the whole thing falls apart or, or house of cards or whatever and so um so that was kind of big for me that was kind of a big deal but i was still in a cult environment and oddly enough wasn't was questioning some of what was going on around me because this was post RPF, but still not questioning enough to get out. That took a few more years. Let's just throw in for any, anybody who's not acquainted with the terms, the RPF is the Rehabilitation Project Force, which is the kind of gulag, the labor camp, where um, anybody who has disagreed in Scientology who, who works within the C organization, as Chris did very yes. bravely, that's where you get sent when, when you've got to be reprogrammed. It's kind of like the Chinese... Uh, re-education camps but that's Scientology's right. version yeah. that's right exactly so I so I did that RPF program and that you know that that weirded me out for a bit but um but then finally got myself out of the Sea Org after a few years and and was kind of done with with the with the Sea Org life and it was again critical thinking that came to the rescue because within three months of getting out of the Sea Org actually about five months of you know three months of diving down the internet rabbit hole you know, curiosity was driving me. Critical thinking was driving that. If I wasn't critically thinking, I would never have gone down that rabbit hole. I never would have looked those things up. And so, so somehow that instinct or drive to, you know, to be curious and satiate my curiosity, uh, you know, kind of pulls me along on these threads. And then after Scientology, you know, after three months, I wasn't a Scientologist anymore. And that was a real big deal. And, and, you know, emotionally, I was incredibly pissed off. But but rationally, I was in a better place than I'd ever been in my life. I mean, I was, I was finally free of L. Ron Hubbard's bullshit, right? And that was big. That was a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Then comes the big question about two months, three months later. How do I make sure I never, ever have that happen to me again? Mm-hmm. And of course, the answer to that question is you can't, but, but exactly. you can fight, you can do things, you can defend and arm yourself with critical thinking. And, and it was actually Googling, how do I, how do I spot bullshit? How do I find it? How do I, how do I know when I'm, be, when I'm being presented with bullshit? This was literally the question I was asking. And what came up? Carl Sagan, right? Bullshit detection mm-hmm. kit, right? Uh, which the he, demon, of course... Demon, re- de- the bamboozle, the demon haunted, haunted world. That's yeah. right. That's right. So, yeah. so all that comes clear, and I, am, mm-hmm. uh, I read Demon Haunted World. I adopt critical thinking as a formal 
subject, like, oh, this is a thing. Mm -hmm. People study this. There's there's lesson plans online. There's there's curricula. There's books. There's all this stuff. I'm like, oh, my mm -hmm. God. And I, you know, and I, like anybody, you try to dive into logic books and textbooks and stuff, and you get lost in two minutes. It's, it's crazy. You can't, I can't think with symbolic logic and all this other nonsense. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that people need to become logisticians or, or, you know, get, get PhDs in, in philosophy to be good critical thinkers. And in fact, I think that in a way, some of that, you lose the plot of the practicality of it a little bit when you get off into the weeds of the academia of it. It's great to know the history of Socrates and Plato and all that, but it's not intensely practical. You know, what, you need rules, you need guidelines, you need some ideas, and you, what you really need at the heart of this whole thing in terms of my description of critical thinking is you need the discipline of critical thinking and i always draw, and now what i do is i try to draw a martial arts analogy to it it's discipline it's it's a practice you have to practice you have to train your mind in the same way you have to train your body with martial arts you don't know on day one how to punch through a board it takes discipline it takes practice 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 it's the same thing with critical thinking you don't know on day one how to spot a logical fallacy you don't know how to spot when somebody's telling you something that you, you kind of think it doesn't make sense but you don't quite know why you know trying to figure out and dissect those kind of things and figuring that kind of stuff out that's the intensely practical stuff and and then the last thing I want to add on that is for me, and, and maybe, maybe this isn't as big of a thing for other people who talk about critical thinking, but for me, it's a life skill. And so I am always, you know, kind of weighing it against its practicality and usefulness in life. And that means that I have to include the, the reality that human beings who think also engage in emotion. And emotions are powerful, and they're powerful influencers, and they have, a, they have a lot to do with why and how we think the way we do. So for me, emotional intelligence and understanding the emotional component of our thought process is part of the critical thinking thing. It's not a, it's not a Mr. Spock, all is logic kind of approach to life, because that's not how we live life. So that's, in a, in a, in a big nutshell, my take on, on critical thinking and why I think it's so important. And I, and I think that's the important thing that has to be appended to the comment yes. that critical think because we we have to have a definition of critical thinking. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I'm hesitant about it, because um, when, when I was working at Open Minds, I, I wrote, uh, I think, 180 articles for, wow. for the website. Wow. And the only subject that stymied me completely was critical thinking. I spent months picking up books, reading articles, and trying to see what the definition of critical thinking was. Yeah. And by the end of that, I just gave up. <laughs> um, so that's my hesitation. It's not what you are doing or your approach to life. Yeah. I think we agree pretty thoroughly about that. Yes. That you've got to work out what is a good source of authority? Who are the experts? Yep. When the experts clash, look look at both sides and see what's going on. I, I mean, for me, I was already involved in critical thinking because of Plato and and the, you know what Socrates had said, because this was a way of approaching problems. It, and I loved, to, you know, I, I had a, have a brother who's seven years older than I am, so he 
deluged me with literature, which was way beyond my pay grade at the age of 14 and 15. He, he tried to get me to read Kafka and Sartre and things like that. <laughs> that had to destroy a child's mind. Right. Um, but among this with, was a, a book translated by Evie Rieur, um, who my brother's very fond of, which were the, uh, the Crito, the Phaedo, and um, the last dialogue of, of Socrates. Uh-huh. And, I, you know, although I couldn't manage Voltaire and Sartre at that age, this, I could read this, I could understand this. It was very straightforward. Yep. And that what Socrates was saying was, you, you get this thing that, that he's told that the Sibyl, the prophet, has said that he is the wisest man in the world. And he's like, what? <laughs> You're kidding you. <laughs> And he goes out and he talks to the wisest people, the people who are thought to be wise, and he realises they're not very clever. And out of this comes this, what he's called the Socratic method, mm. where rather than starting from the premise, I know and I will prove to you that this is true, yep. you start from the premise, I don't know and I think you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Which is much easier. You know, as, a, as an agnostic, it's really easy for me to deal with any faith Yep. whether it be atheism or theism, yep. because I, I don't have any beliefs to defend. Right. So <laughs> pointing out how silly other people's beliefs, I'm in a very safe place. Right. Um, so it, it's really about that. that and, and, and the way I responded, I hope not too crassly, <laughs> to, to, to the thought was I looked at two of the founders of critical thinking and what they came to believe. And this is the point where... Thoughts yeah. and belief is important. One of them is Robert Thulas, and, and I cannot recommend Straight and Crooked Thinking too much. It is a brilliant work, which was updated by his grandson eventually, mm. the last version, and it really does touch everything that, that we've talked about so far. Mm-hmm. Um, Thulas was a, a professor at Glasgow at the time. He later became a professor at Cambridge, you know, so it's very... And his book, he'd, he'd written a bit before, but suddenly in 1930, Straight and Crooked Thinking becomes an international bestseller. Yep. And a whole movement comes out of it. And I think it is pretty much the origin of the critical thinking movement, okay. uh, which is a very sensible idea. But what I pointed out was that 40 years later, um, he was writing a book which is called um, From Anecdote to Evidence in Psychical Research mm-hmm. because he was on the board of the Psychical Research Society. He believed in extrasensory perception. Um, he believed in telekinesis. And uh, I don't. Right. Um, my So this brilliant thinker, this man who gave us tools for critical thinking, and the other person I, I cited was William James. Uh, really, along with Gustave Le Bon, they're the founders of modern psychology. Yep, that's right. Certainly American psychology, William James. Yeah, and James has an influence all over the world. The the varieties of religious experience. Um, I read about the first 50 pages and put it down, and 10 years later came back to, you know, just after I left Scientology, I picked it up. 10 years later, I came back and kicked myself for not reading it all the way through. Because when he talks about, for example, conversion and the fervor that people feel, he says, oh, if you're a fervent believer, you'll become a fervent disbeliever. Yeah. And uh, yep. that's certainly, you know, and he was the first person to alert me to this concept of the feelings of knowing, what he calls noesis, mm-hmm. that we 
think we know. The example I always give, I gave it to Toronto when we first met, and it's it's my favourite example. I was 17, this guy stopped me on the street and gave me a two, two hours of waffle about Jesus and how great Jesus was. And I, it just so happened that I just reread the Gospels. Um, but, you know, no longer as a believer, not as a disbeliever, just agnostic, you know, Charming, some really useful things are said in there about being nice to people. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, getting the money lenders out of the temple. I, that's probably a good idea too. I don't know. Separating the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, if you're going to make bread, you've got to do that. But I'm gluten intolerant, you know, so it's I have to keep away from wheat and chaff. Right. Um, but so I happen to be able to quote back at him, you know, and, and say, well, where does Jesus claim that he's the son of God? And he's like, well, um, uh, I say it's John the Baptist, isn't he? He hears a voice saying, this is my only beloved son yep. in whom I am well pleased. But later on, when he's brought news of John the Baptist's death, God, he's lost his head, you know, um, he says, not that I believe the words of men, saying that he's not sure that what he's been told is true. And that's a really interesting statement. Yep. Not that I believe the words of men. Who wrote these gospels? It was men, wasn't it? You know, And this guy, you know, I'm, You've seen me do it. I just waffle on and on until people run away. And he backed off from me. Yep. And, he, and he said, I don't understand the Bible, but I know it's all true. Ah, Those are feelings of knowing. Yep. There we go. And we all do it. Yep. We, we do. all do it. Well, we, and, and, and the, you can see that we have to in order to get along in life. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to move if you had to exactly. analyze and evaluate everything, you know. What is in this uh, this glass of cordial? Where did it come from? Is it really good for me? No, it's got sugar in it. So, oh, no, why am I drinking it? Oh, damn, I mustn't drink things. Um, exactly. It, we, we have to, there's this integration within us. You know, so many people have, over the years have said to me, I don't believe anything. And it's like, do you believe that? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a great retort. Yeah, exactly, because we all believe things, you know. We, yeah, we have it, to, by necessity. I, I got to this thing after, you know, I, I share your view after I left Scientology. I was high for a year. It was great. I didn't have to conform my thinking to Ron Hubbard's perverse view of the universe anymore. I didn't have to get an ideal scene and, and exactly. go through all of this stuff. It was wonderful. Exactly. You know, it's, it's the most liberate. And yet I meet so many people who, when they leave the group, are just completely lost. They don't know what to think anymore, what to That's believe right. anymore. I was going, I don't have to believe anything, <laughs> you know. And it allowed me to start again to, to say, you know, I've, I can empty all of this stuff out and then I'll look at it bit by bit and, and see if I think it's true. Yep. And I didn't. You know, it's 38 years later and there's not a single aspect of Dianetics or Scientology that I hold to be true because anything that did seem to be true I found the origin of. Mm -hmm. I wrote a paper called Possible Origins for Dianetics and Scientology, you know, back in 93, somewhere around there. And I found all of these places. Now, Hubbard himself said that you should always look to the original source of material. So I just did what he advised. That's the one piece of advice I will hold to. You know. the, uh, the genus, as he said, misusing the word, mm -hmm. of, inf of information. But... I didn't just look to Alistair Crowley, who's the origin of most of Scientology, yep. you know, from the birth engrams through past lives and the visualization of creative processing and the 
the guiding of the imagination, which is the, the heart of Scientology. Mm-hmm. I didn't just look to Alistair Crowley because he too is a plagiarizer. I looked to where he'd got ideas from and, and on and on and on. And so any ideas that I've accepted, and there are a few, uh, the core ones, reacting trauma, you know, reliving trauma to get over it. I'm not really sure how useful that is. Mm-hmm. I think it is occasionally useful to some people, but work done in the 90s suggests that debriefing, as it's as it came to be called then, they, they took people after accidents and some of them were debriefed straight away, yeah. you know, by the paramedics, and others were not. And they found out that the people who'd been debriefed actually suffered the trauma for longer. Oh, that's interesting. Because you're reifying it, you're yeah. making it more more solid, as Hubbard would say. That's right. You know, push it in. That's right. So, you know, the behavioral approach of, yeah, well, forget that. Find a new way of thinking about it and a new way of behaving instead of going, oh, yeah, when I was three years old, I wanted this custard and and my nanny wouldn't give it to me. And I'm really upset about it still. It's, it's colored my whole, you know, it's like, just get over it, you know, grow <laughs> and go and buy a custard, you know, if you really want a custard that badly. Yeah. Um, so, well, if I, if I might address something mm-hmm. you said there about um, might. Just, yes. just a little earlier, just on something I'd like to contribute on the, on the, uh, on what you've run into and, and completely understandable. You look at somebody like a Newton or, um, you know, the, uh, William James or the, the other person you mentioned, mm-hmm. the. Uh, Thules, Robert Thules. Yeah. Thules. Yeah, exactly. And of course, with with a modern look back, what I think when I see these people and these examples you cite is I see somebody whose emotional needs were not being met in some fashion or who had some emotional attachment to a belief set that had to be true or they really wanted it to be true. Now, I have not engaged with this the, the, the Thule's guy. So I don't know if his experiments were legit, were unbiased, were, were an approach of, I would like this to be true, let's do some experiments and see, or no, this is absolutely fucking true and I'm going to show all of you people, right? And if it was that kind of an approach, well, that's not necessarily the objective approach we want in science. And, and I get that. I get how that could be frustrating. But I'll also point out something. Um, and this is just from my own research into emotions, but the fact of the matter is that emotions have not been something that have been studied at a very deep level for a very long time. And our concepts of emotional intelligence even and the, and the role that emotions play, what emotions even are. I mean, I, I challenge you to go get a solid definition that will hold up between neuroscience, psychology, psychiatry, and sociology for the, for the word emotion. You won't. You won't find. Challenge you to find anything that will <laughs> anything that will stick any up, of those right? subjects yes. where they will agree about that. Exactly thing. right. So good luck with that. Yet emotion is clearly pivotal to the experience of every one of those fields. I mean, emotion has something to do with all of those. And so, so understanding what emotions are, what they, what role they play, how they are, are both good and bad, what, what what's the coin here, what's the good side and the bad side, is something that is a very recent study. And maybe that study is producing answers that make sense, and maybe it's not. You know, really only time will tell with some of that. But it's the but looking at the best we have right now on that line, 
I have I've taken it in and tried to use it and adopt it into my critical thinking repertoire. And I'm only pointing out that I'm able to do that where James and Thuways and Newton and these other guys weren't because they didn't have the literature and research we have now. And I have to comment on that because science and progress and critical thinking is all evolutionary. It all builds on earlier stuff. So I get the frustration at watching people who are otherwise very rational engage in very irrational behavior, but I don't think that needs to nullify the importance or use of critical thinking in that, in that sense. Yeah, but there is, there is a little worm built into what you just said. Yeah, tell me. That is critical thinking 1900. Critical thinking, 1950. Critical thinking, 1975. Yeah. Critical thinking, 2000. Yeah. Where is the point where critical thinking became perfect? Oh, I and don't know that it is. Oh, I don't know that it is Exactly. Yet. Yeah. So if we, if we look exactly to, to Newton or Galileo, they were cheats. There's no, they, they were not only not scientific in their approach, 50% of Galileo's experiments are forgeries. If you look to the three copies of the Principia Mathematica by Newton, he actually made his results table better in each edition without doing any more experiments. He spent more time doing alchemy than, than physics. Interesting. And trying to, trying to prove that the Bible contained a code which would show the dimensions of the Temple of Solomon, which would be the dimensions of the universe. The guy was a lunatic. But he, Galileo, Kepler, you can put him in as well, Copernicus. The, I think what's important is to say that, or one of the important things is that the belief system you're within is, is not the significant thing, but you have to be aware of that. Yes. So if we're saying... Chris Shelton's view of critical thinking is the antidote to cults. We might be able to get somewhere, but if we yeah. make the broad statement critical thinking, well, Robert Thewlis's critical thinking, Newton's critical thinking, the problem is that, it, and so, so I absolutely don't disagree with what you said, it is important to think about things. Yes. It is important to think critically. Yes. It is important, you know, using the old skills of rhetoric, which is a topic that's been with us since... Socrates, at least, yeah, um, and used to be taught in schools. All universities taught rhetoric from, you know, the foundation of uh, Bologna, I think, was the first of the European uni universities in the 12th century, Oxford and the Sorbonne in Paris. They are founded on, with this subject called rhetoric. Yeah. Um, rhetoric drops out of the curriculum in the 1950s. It lasts all of that time, wow. and it drops out because Latin is no longer taught. And so the lectures of Cicero on rhetoric, which I haven't read, in case anybody's thinking I'm actually clever, um, <laughs> they, they drop out of the curriculum. Huh. And rhetoric says you first of all learn how to analyse a problem, that is, how to break it down into its basic parts. Yes. You then evaluate what you have, and you then should be able to articulate what you found. Yes. And all students were taught this. Now nobody's taught it. Yes. And, and I instead, will be the first to say that is a crime against humanity. Yeah. And instead, we have all of these curricula which call themselves critical thinking. And they may have the you know 128 logical fallacies that you can go and do an exam on, um, I think Thules is a really good starting point for anybody 
is watching here because you do get a very straightforward uh, description of of the fundamentals of this topic of how to to think about things and right. to, you know like the distributed middle that's my favorite that that you know you find things like you know how specious reasoning can be done you know mm -hmm. um, all cats have four legs all dogs have four legs therefore all dogs are cats there you go that's exactly you know, that's right the syllogism the syllogism of aristotle which Elron hubbard uh, mistakenly in the false data stripping bulletin of all places attributes to socrates it's false data hubbard <laughs> in the phoenix lectures he knew it was aristotle but by the time he gets to telling us about false data you know i can't trust him well, you know, it's probably the case that he didn't even write the damn bulletin, but, you know, I stray from the theme here. Yeah, I, I mean, all of those later things are extracted by Ray Mitoff or, or whoever was, was at the helm. And it, exactly. Uh, Jesse Prince and Nancy Money at uh, Toronto. Uh, Jesse was said, he said he found Nancy reading the famous OT8 bulletin where he described, you know, he's saying he's Lucifer and the Antichrist, and she was crossing out the bits that weren't written by Hubbard. And Jesse said, you're, you're absolutely right. I saw the construction. How do you know? And she said, I had so many communications from Hubbard. I know his inflection completely. And so, yeah, there are so, you know, later on, Hubbard was too lazy to actually edit anything he ever wrote. He never reread anything, as far as I can tell. So he could contradict himself at will. So I, I interviewed a guy called Ken Rose. I was in LA in 93, and he'd been the head of Ron's Technical Compilations. They had to change the name from RTC because they got another one. That's right, RTRC, that's right. Yeah, and he said everything, this, every fart, every burp, every whistle this man emitted from the early 1970s onwards was recorded. And we will never catch up with everything he said. You know, and good luck to them so it means miscavige can now you know grab well he said this thing here and you know and we get the we get all this stuff but but yes false data series the truth rundown the key to life all of those later things he, he's just over the hills and far away he's completely lost it and every now and then in the midst of the dementia he he comes out with something like uh, well socrates invented the syllogism and you go no he didn't it exactly. was aristotle exactly um well, wow. I think that the, the essential that again we'd agree on is that that, that we need to be skeptical about the world, mm -hmm. and just as you were skeptical about, you know, conspiracy theories within Scientology, I found that same thing as a young Scientologist at age twenty or so. I read von Daniken chariots of the gods oh right i remember those oh those were so electrifying i remember being a young man reading those things and just yeah. being like oh what yeah. <laughs> it's the way the truth and the life and i believed it uh, and i went from from there to the illuminati i read the three novels of the illuminati and mm. went oh yeah see that's what's going on so i i you know i have to say i you know i was young and foolish i'm old and foolish now Right. Um, so <laughs> the age has changed at least. So when I talk with people who are into, you know, oh, the Illuminati did this, and it's like, well, actually, no, the Illuminati actually disbanded after 10 years, the Bavarian Illuminati. And, you know, while it is lovely to believe that the devil is controlling the world or whatever name you want to give to this entity that you believe controls the world, 
this is a paradigm that, that doesn't work for me. I think there are probably about 150 distinct corporations in conspiracy and contest with one another in the world. Yep. Not just one or two. And, and very much what you just said, it's CNC, it's conspiracy and competition. Yeah. You know, it's not just they're all in some tight knit conspiracy and they meet every year at G6 or something. This is, I mean, it, it's so much more complicated than people think. Mm. I, to, to get ready to talk to Sean Atwood, who is an interesting, if eccentric character, <laughs> yes. um, who, as one of the commentators pointed out, has a head like an egg and uh, ought to grow a beard so he can see that he's not an egg and whatever. But I, wow. in preparation, I saw that he'd interviewed David Icke. And I couldn't resist it. So I watched the David, I watched the one with you, I watched the one with, with David Icke. And I sat there going, he's making sense. What's happened to David Icke? Because he said, well, basically, the unidentified flying objects, of course, the, the Russians and the Americans seized the plans for the jet vehicles that the Germans had built. In fact, uh, I can give a bit more information on that because I read a bit more than Icke's done. That they they got this one. I think it's forty five meters across. The Russians and the, the Russians actually got it. The Americans got blueprints because they managed to destroy the craft. These things had VTOL vertical takeoff and landing jets. The Messerschmitt two six two had jet engines. They were the first people to build them, and they built these craft. So when the Americans and the Russians were trying these things out, did they try them out? No, we won't bother. You know, they've got, got these things that fly beyond the speed of sound. We wouldn't want to do that, would we? When they tried them out, of course, they had to make stories up about them. And Ike gets to this point where he's, he's actually realized what these things are. Then he starts talking about aliens. Right. And you're going, don't you get it that it was the Russian and American intelligence agencies that made up the stories about Area 50, whatever it is. Exactly. And Roswell and all of that as a cover, and they still are. I mean, I think it was only in the last couple of years, there's been a US agency report saying, and it could be aliens, you know, you go, no, it isn't, it's you, you're lying, swine. <laughs> so, well, I will certainly that, give over that that's a more, is a more logically consistent explanation to me than that, you know, aliens are secretly visiting us and, and controlling our hmm. DNA and stuff. Uh, I'll certainly yeah. say that. Or that, you know, lizard people from other dimensions or, or something are, but you know. Ike had such such a goal that he eventually said, oh, yeah, I'd taken a lot of ayahuasca and when I saw the lizards, and that's not really true. And you're going, so what is really true? Because his whole method of inquiry, and anybody that is that fascinated can watch my conversation about Andy Nolch, yes. debunking, yes. Andy Nolch debunking. You don't have to watch the other things there about Scientology, but taking apart his conspiracy ideas Andy came up with this thing, and he actually says, he says, John should, should believe weaker evidence. There's such a thing as circumstantial evidence. And I'm going, when I've got strong evidence, why should I believe this? And he tells this wild story about, you know, if my boss is seen holding hands with a bloke and he wears lipstick, he's probably gay, so I'm going to make a video about it. And I'm, why have you got to make a video about your boss being gay? What is wrong with you? Who cares? Right. And you do know that Arab men hold hands, and that actors wear lipstick, you know, that it's, you know, your weak evidence is not necessarily, you know, was he in a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta when he was wearing lipstick? You know, there are, this context. But this thought that you can use, you know, there's inference, which is where you've got information 
from which you infer, and there's implication, which is where you've got a hint. And so many of these people, they're implying. Yes. It feels as if it fits in with their way of looking at the world. So for me, the, you know, I agree with you, but I would say that, that what we have to have is humility. Well, I was, is yes. The, yeah, I was, I was, yeah, I'm That is so what our track. critical thing yes. is. Am I willing to challenge what I believe? Yes. And am I willing to actually, can I come to the point, and it may seem masochistic, but I don't think it is. Can I come to the point where I enjoy cognitive dissonance, where I like yeah. being challenged, as long as people are polite about it, right. and can then go, oh, my, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Maybe L. Ron Hubbard was just a narcissistic fat man who was bullied as a child because he had red hair and terrible spots, who went around with a huge lump on his head and whose teeth fell out because they all went rotten. Maybe that is the truth of Ron Hubbard as so many people I've interviewed have told me. Oh, and as the photographs show when it comes to the lump on his head, you know, a massive sebaceous cyst, just that he wouldn't go to a doctor about. And this guy's a superhuman. And then you get to the independence Scientologist saying, yes, we know he was a liar and a scoundrel, but he, he white-taped the route to what, getting out of your head. Yeah, what? <laughs> What are you talking? I mean, if he can't demonstrate it himself, how does he? How how do we have a route out? I mean, feelings of knowing exactly because it's not because it's not the case with Ron that you know. Oh well, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. But look, he he got the product anyway. He didn't get the product. He didn't produce calculus. He didn't produce a book on critical thinking. He didn't produce even that much. Everything he produces is crap. Yes. And that, and that's the bottom line with L. Ron Hubbard is literally everything the man produced is crap, you know. Except they're... for the system of enslaving people, yeah. which is possibly the most refined such system ever made. That, you know, here we are, two let's say reasonably intelligent people <laughs> who spent years of our lives yeah. dedicated to this man, and you're going. He wasn't all that. You know, whenever somebody tells me he was a genius, it's like, yeah, he was a genius at conning people. Yes, exactly. But when it comes to an understanding of physics or photography or music, oh, no, you know, or, or he seems to have been a reasonably good navigator. But did he, did he navigate us into the place, into a good place? You know? Exactly. I, I, I had a real shock. I was talking with Karen Tillacaria a week or so back. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about overboarding, you know, this, this, like when they're in Corfu Harbour, he's throwing people four stories down. You know, this is not the high board at the swimming pool, the 14 foot board. This is like at least 25 feet with your ankles tied and a blindfold on, and you're being thrown into the cold water of the Mediterranean because you were two minutes late for a course or you, uh, smiled at Hubbard at the, an inappropriate moment. Or, and I'm, you know, I know all about that. I, I only found out about it after I left Scientology. Nobody mentioned it to me. Oh, by the way, you're now in a group where the Chuck people are, you know, nobody ever mentioned that to me. But I left and then I saw the photographs in Auditor Number 41, double page spread, where this guy is being thrown overboard, you know, photo credit L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, so they, they promoted that they were doing this. Yeah, at that time. And, yeah. and it, they're still doing a version of it, throwing cold buckets of cold water over people, chucking them in the lake at St. Hill. Yep. Just this appalling, traumatizing people so you can de traumatize them. 
okay, which is what the whole point of Dianetics was. Well, now we're giving them the, the engrams so that we'll be able to recover them later. But she told me something which in you know, my involvement with Scientology now is 47 years, which is appalling. You know, I was a 19-year-old <laughs> lad when I first got involved. I had never heard this before. Yeah, what did but she say? She said, of course, they were in harbour. So all of the ships were putting their sewage into the water. So they weren't just being thrown into cold water. They were being thrown into human sewage. So as part of the road to freedom by this wonderful philanthropist, you know, the Buddha Maitreya, who had come to save us all, is such abject nonsense. Ah, Just total nonsense. Well, listen. Let me uh, let me say one thing real fast before I forget on the on the tag end of what you were just talking about with critical thinking a few minutes ago, and then I want to segue perfectly over what we've already been kind of segueing over to, which is which is predators, right? Human predators. But let me let me let me say this because you you're you hit the nail on the head with humility, and where I, what what the only contribution I have to make to that to add to that is, I was going to say, you know, there's a that discipline factor of critical thinking. I'm not kidding about that. It's discipline. It's practice. Mm. You got to work to be a good critical thinker. It's not. There is not one human being I have met who is a natural critical thinker. Uh, and, and, this, and again, I'll draw the analogy in the same way that there's never anybody I've ever met who was born breaking boards and bricks with their hands. It just doesn't work that way. You got to learn how to do it. The point I want to make. Some people have more of a talent for it. You know, Rembrandt and Michelangelo, by the time they were 15, were doing amazing things. But they had to work to get to it. And they had to keep working to be able to do it. That's right. Exactly. And where it. And and, And it's so easy to to con yourself with this stuff. It's so easy to think that now you know the truth. Yes. No, you don't. That exactly. And that's the point is there's a very core piece of information that if you know and keep at the forefront of your mind a lot or try to remember it or post it noted or something mm-hmm. it's really important piece of information and that is that your and this is a modern thing this is something that was in philosophy for years but now we actually kind of know your brain doesn't exist to give you rational logical objectively true answers That's not why it was evolved the way that it has. It's never been its purpose to give you the objective truth about reality. Your brain only needs a story that makes sense to you. And that's it. That's all it requires for you to survive in the world. And, you know, there was no purpose for evolution. Evolution (laughs) just happened. Random mutation. The idea there's any design intelligent or unintelligent going on it isn't there what's more the mind you know and i'm accepting the philosophical premise that the brain is an aspect of mind Mm -hmm. the mind is a predictive mechanism yes it's it's going what's going to happen next and how am i going to deal with it yes when we get into the sense that that we now know everything you know we've cracked all of the problems um uh, we talked before, you read um, On Being Certain, a wonderful book by Robert A. Burton. Well, he wrote another book, and I wrote to him and said, look, you know, I think you're absolutely brilliant. And he actually wrote back and thanked me, which I thought was nice. He's a neurologist. Yes. He was the head I of love this book. Science, A Skeptic's Guide to the Mind, in which he undoes many of the 
big claims made for neurology. And we come back to, I think it was Wittgenstein who basically said, well, you have to be very suspicious about any mechanical basis for the mind. Yep. And we, we move from one set of certainties to another. And, and it is good to, you know, humility, you can kind of test it by, by saying, I'm being really humble now. I mean, Trump in um, one of his, there's this little book, Think Like a Champion, I think it's called. And he says in it, one of the things that people don't realize about me is how humble I am. <laughs> oh, my God. That is just like my old joke. I constantly will, will joke with people. Oh, yeah, my, my, my humility is my best quality. Yeah, exactly. Right? You know? it's, <laughs> it's matched matched only by my self-effacing attitude. And the, the enormous phallus that I... <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so, exactly. It's, it's really important that we remember that our version of the world is our version of the world. And it is constantly being updated and revised by our brain. And if we can keep the disciplinary view in mind all the time, or as much as we possibly can, that that we only see what we see. We don't get the whole picture. We're never going to get the whole picture. We are not capable as individual human beings of getting that. So you got to be humble because you got to always be willing to question your own conclusions and the conclusions of others. And if that's not critical thinking, I don't know what is. And, that's, and, and you'll you know. also have far less problem of people calling you an arrogant bastard. Yeah. <laughs> I am told, and I've never read the man, I'm told that Immanuel Kant in the 18th century pointed out that there is the world out here and then there is the world in which we live, each one of us. Elrond yes. Hubbard had a kind of... Yes. Oh, he hated Kant. He, he was always down on Kant. He made a joke. I remember in the communication chapter, he was like, well, if Kant couldn't... And if and if uh, Aristotle, you know, whatever. I mean, he was trying to make little jokes, but he was, you know, he was like, he was always making jokes about Kant, you know, because no, oh, absolutely, yeah. it, 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 because somebody had told him that these were big, difficult books. Yep. I very much doubt that he opened them. From from my experience of Hubbard, he, he if he could get the Reader's Digest or the boy's own version of something, certainly all about radiation doesn't even get to the boy's own level of understanding. <laughs> right. But, but this point that Kant makes, Kwasibski, who again Hubbard steals ideas from, yep. um, and, and who's important to the development of, of uh, rational emotive therapy and cognitive therapy, this idea the word is not the thing itself. Yep. You know, you've got to realise that you're symbolising in your head, but the map is not the territory. And we can only ever live in the map. We can only ever live in our own perception and interpretation of the world. Big time. And by reminding ourselves of that, you know, and uh, I am one of those people who has to because I do get way too big for my boots <laughs> frequently. <laughs> it never happens to me, so I have no idea no, what you're I, talking about. I, I think we all know that, yeah, Chris. No. <laughs> so I, I wanted to yeah. actually interject something from... Yeah. Um, I have a copy of Straight and Crooked thinking here this yeah, is the book the, i need to read it's uh was that actually his grandson came back to it and updated it very sensible um gentleman um so th th there are so many things that could be said but um it says um the learned author of a textbook on logic 
may be quite unable to come to reasonable conclusions on a question in which his own interests are deeply involved. Yeah. For example, job security for university lecturers. <laughs> Education does not in itself save us from this disability. It ought to help us towards freedom from prejudice, but it does not necessarily do so. Learned academics are often as bound by their prejudices as anyone else. Learned persons may defend their most unreasonable prejudices by arguments in a correct, logical form, while the uneducated defend theirs by illogical arguments. The only advantage this gives the learned is the fact that they can marshal formally correct, formally correct arguments in defense of their errors. This may make these more watertight against opposing arguments and opposing experience. Mastery of the art of thought may simply make unreasonable opinions more unassailable. So that's what we have to, you know, we have to be careful about. And we yep. have to keep, as you say, we have to keep coming back and thinking again. That's and, right. And saying, that's right. You know, so when you look at von Daniken, for example, in Chariots of the Gods, there's a picture of the Nazca lines, mm -hmm. these beautiful images of birds in, is it Peru? Um, yeah. Which are laid across the ground. He says, you're an alien spaceships could have landed on these lines. What he doesn't point out is that the photograph is of a piece one metre long. <laughs> so they would have been very tiny alien spaceships. <laughs> really, really small. <laughs> okay, Earthlings. Yeah, and it's, you know, on. and by the way, let me, let, me, let me throw one more log onto the fire on the critical thinking discussion just because I just thought of it and I should have said it earlier, which is the, the element of time. Um, because that, that's an important piece of this, okay? I, you know, something I want to point out is, you know, after getting out of Scientology and exploring the big wide world and looking at the realm of, of possibilities, you know, I very much glommed on to social values and trying to make the world a better place through recognition of human rights mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And I, I'm going to beat that drum for, till the end of my life, I'm sure. Yeah, me too. Um, but, as, but, but when you get on that train... Like with any other situation, you can get into extremism. You can get into taking it too far. One, this taught me that it's not the pro it's not the belief or the issue. It's how far you take it that is generally an issue. Unless you're talking about like you know neo-Nazi beliefs or something. I mean, outright, obviously destructive stuff. But when it comes to human rights and stuff, nothing wrong with that. But you can get in an extremist headspace about it. And that extremism is never going to help. It's always going to make things worse. Whether it's going to be, you know, that you're, that you're blowing off allies, that you're not getting allies, that you're not able to recruit people because you're just too extreme. You just come across as a, as a radical, crazy person, right? Nobody wants to be part of that. So I recognized elements of that in myself, you know, in some of these values after a few years of being out of Scientology. And I went, whoa hang on, this isn't what I want to be or do or, you know, how I want to come across to people. And I had to pull the reins back on that. But I will again suggest that for me and the way that I think about things, and it was only because I was willing to question myself, have some humility, you know, drop the need to be right about things and be right about what I have said and done in the past, because I have said some really stupid shit, you know. We all. <laughs> Haven't we all, right? <laughs> And I have to own that I have done that, and that's part of the process, right? And so that humility element is very, very important, but also that you have to give yourself a little bit of, of a break that 
it's going to take time to realize things sometimes. It doesn't hit you all at once. It's not a it's not a light switch. That's not how our beliefs generally work. So not a cognition. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the epiphany, right? Uh, more like a bognition. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, anyways, you got to give yourself a little bit of, of breathing space for that mm -hmm. and not kill yourself over those kind of bad decision making that you've made in the past. Because if you did come to a point where you realized it was wrong, good, you did that. Acknowledge mm -hmm. it. You know what I mean? I have to, t and, I, and I'm only saying this so vociferously because I'm kind of talking to myself as well. Because this, this is this is how I am. I as I as I love glomming onto things and and running with it. But you can run too far, too fast, or go too far with it, and um, and it sometimes takes some time to recognize that you've done that, and then pull back on the reins a little bit. You know. So I wanted to include that as the con in part of the conversation. Yeah, and, and I seek to live passionately. I I, I seek to, to invest myself fully. Yeah. In, in life and experience it. And that means that sometimes, you know, you will go a bit too far. Um, one of the things that Thulis says is that uh, the point where um, critical thinking, um, straight thinking, as he calls it, goes out of the window is the point where you start getting emotional. And, and he says, as soon as we start investing emotionally, it is time to stop, take a breath, and think about what's going on. Yep. I, I people, you know, this left and right thing, the, the left and right are, are terms in America that mean something kind of different to the rest of the world. Yep. Um, and, <laughs> so I've come to learn. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you have words like libtard. Yes. Um, great. Or, or repturd. That's that's what I invented. Um, you can go either way with this. That, those are people who are reptilians. I'm not talking about Republicans, obviously. That. Obviously. Um, but... That I don't. This left and right to me, the left and the right are both authoritarian extremes. Yep. I'm. I believe in democracy, and yep. I, you know, that brings us right to the heart of our next conversation. Because the reason that democracy, Churchill said this thing, you know, democracy is the worst system of government ever devised, except for all the others, <laughs> which I still agree with. <laughs> <laughs> He's a weird character. He really was a I dreadful, know. awful, brilliant, <laughs> wonderful man. Yes. You know, the European uh, Convention of Human Rights, he wrote it. The idea of having a European Union, it was his idea. And yet he, you know, would, he just loved war. He just loved fighting his whole life. He, you know, really brilliant man. Also, he, he, what a sense of humour when a woman sat down next to him and said, um, if you were my husband, I would put poison in your coffee. And he looked at her and straight back said, Madam, if I were your husband, I would drink it. <laughs> Which is exactly. the only possible response to that. But so to me, authoritarianism is the core subject. That yeah. the, the reason that, that the world is in such dire trouble is because of authoritarianism. It's because of bullies. It's because of human beings who believe themselves to be the ambassadors of God or the devil or some great higher powers, and, and then that they are right and that they should be adulated and obeyed. Yep. And that's the history of monarchies, dictatorships, tyrannies, which is largely what history consists of. Um, yeah, we've talked about this before, and I brought up the Indus Valley civilization, which for 700 years managed to not do this. Yes. So human beings can 
you know, live in peace with one another. It, it has been done. There's, there's a society, they think now, a civilization that existed in, in, in the Ukraine, mm. but it's proving a little difficult for archaeologists in the Ukraine at the moment because circumstances are rather dangerous there, yeah. which is sad. Um, but we have a tendency to follow people who are predatory and destructive. Right. And, you know, in Scientology, we got all this stuff about the suppressive person, the antisocial personality. After I published uh, what is now called Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, I had a letter from Richard DeMille. Richard DeMille was the son of Cecil B. DeMille, the famous film director. Uh, he was actually his blood nephew, but was adopted by him. He wrote three books under the name L. Ron Hubbard. The most famous of them is uh, Science of Survival. Um, and he wrote them from Hubbard's notes. He, they're not a, works original to him, but he brought together all of these, these little recordings. Hubbard, even then, was recording things on these little green discs. I have seen one of them. Mm -hmm. Little wa like. wax discs, right? They're, they're not wax. They're, they're, kind of um, something that can be impressed upon, though, with a recording device. Yeah, they, they, they were recorded with a, with a needle, so they're an analog um, recording. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what the plastic is called, uh. but, but, but I knew a collector called Ron Newman years ago, and he'd got one of the original discs that Science of Survival came from. Really? And, um, yeah. Oh, I would, I would have thought those were up in the archives all locked away. That's fascinating that they're out in the world. A, a lot of stuff, you know, went, went out and about, and a lot has been destroyed along the way. But, um, yeah. you know, J Jerry Armstrong managed to... I think he, he said that he'd collected 600,000 individual artifacts and documents, some some incredible number yeah. in the two years that, that he was doing it. Now, I talked with Robert... Vaughn Young and, and Stacey Young, who of course took over from from Jerry, and uh, yeah, there's always like his baby boots. That's where it starts with that they got Ron Hubbard's baby boots. You know, it's a, an article of worship for people to kiss them and you know, oh well, whatever. Um, but Demille wrote me. Then became a professor of psychology. Um, he wrote a book called How to Put Your Mother on the Ceiling, which uh, smacked of the uh, creative processing of Scientology or Alistair Crowley, who originated it to me. Um, but he he was uh, involved in exposing Carlos Castaneda as a complete and absolute destructive, horrific fraud, you know, a man who made up his stuff and seems to have left a trail of dead bodies behind him, which not enough has been said about. Uh, I mean, literally, bodies buried in the garden. You know, this was a really horrific, terrible man. Um, much beloved of the hippies. Um, and you can't sit on a miser in blinking Arizona in the hot sun for four hours without shriveling to a crisp, you know, even if you can turn into a crow and fly off. It's complete nonsense. He sat in LA in his apartment and wrote all that stuff. It's just, but so who's involved in that? But so he's a guy who knew Hubbard. He went, he looked after the baby when Hubbard stole his daughter. Um, and he uh, was, yeah, DeMille was right in the thick of it for a little while yeah. with Hubbard. And then off he goes, he becomes professor of psychology, and out of the blue, I get this letter from him. He said, I've read your book, and it's the best book ever written about Scientology, and I've read them all. And that was like, yes. You know, mine's the best of the three books. That <laughs> <laughs> there, there, I think there were 13 that I found before mine. And 
everyone has it, you know, doctor's report on Dianetics, di- uh, Dianetics in Limbo by Helen O'Brien is a masterpiece yeah. of understanding of Hubbard. But he said, and, but the thing I enjoyed the most is that you point out that the only true suppressive person was Ron Hubbard. And, um, yeah. okay, that, so that, that I started from there and then I left Scientology and, of course, I was trying to find out where Hubbard got ideas from. So I read The Mask of Sanity by Hervey Cleckley. Now, this is the, the book that all modern work on psychopathy begins with, written in the 1940s. Uh, Robert Hare, the great uh, Hare psychopathy, psychopathy checklist revised, which is used throughout the English-speaking world to diagnose somebody whether they're a psychopath or not. He started from Cleckley and... So I read that, and in the 80s, I talked with a couple of psychiatrists about Hubbard, and one of them told me um, he was crazy. That would be the correct word to use for Hubbard. But that was Frank Gabodi, who was himself at the time was a Scientologist, so maybe his psychiatric diagnosis. Um, and I got some idea of you know what kind of person he was, and he did indeed seem to me to be a suppressive person. When I looked at Cleckley's definition it seemed to be a lot more useful than Hubbard's you know Hubbard evidently devised about half of his points from Cleckley but mm. then kind of wandered off um yeah I wondered how much Hubbard was looking in a mirror writing that policy to be honest with you yeah uh, uh, and it's very interesting that he conflates three things a suppressive person the anti-scientologist and the anti-social personality yes they're the same thing if you're yes. against me you're an antisocial personality. Well, he did that very, very, very much on purpose, right? Very mm. much on purpose. I mean, he had to, especially in the 60s when he sets up the surveillance culture, he has to conflate these things because it must be that Scientology is at the senior position of every equation any of these people are making. Yeah. I mean, one of the most frightening realizations to me was that Hubbard I'm pretty sure, you know, there are days when he believed and days when he didn't. Yeah. There, there are many instances. Of so, so while he was working on Science of Survival at the end of 1950 and living with his girlfriend, Barbara Clode and Barbara Snader, he said to her, you know, I, I, it's nonsense. It doesn't work. I, I don't know anything. And, of course, in Science of Survival, he cancels the original Dianetic technique because it's hypnotic. He says you'll see the eyelids fluttering. This is a sign of trance. And he cancelled it. And then in the 1970s, it's all brought back again. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Standard so, Dianetics, that's right. Know, I, I wrote a, a paper called Never Believe a Hypnotist, which is a quotation from Science of Survival in 1951. Never believe a hypnotist. This is a man who admitted he was a hypnotist. See? Never believe a hypnotist. <laughs> hmm. Okay. What are you trying to tell me, Ron? Um, in that paper, you've got the, you know, the, chapter and verse of him saying the technique used in book one, Dianetics, Modern Science and Mental Health, is dangerous. Not only does it not work, but it does harm. And then it's brought back again. So, you know, that's a little bit of a contradiction. Well, so bet. He, some days, you know, again, with Sarge Fouth at, at the end of his life, he's saying, it, 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 I've misled people, it doesn't work. And I think that's true. But other days, he thought he'd cured himself. Right. 
because his tummy didn't hurt anymore for a day, right. you know, or um, he, he, he could draw breath properly for a day because he hadn't got his annual winter bronchitis. You know, every year the clearing course comes out of it in 65. OT3 comes out of it in 66. <gasps> I'm dying. And when the bronchitis goes away, it's like, I have broken through the wall of fire. And then mm. the next year it comes back again. So there's that tension going on in him. And he identifies this thing, which he first of all calls a merchant of chaos. I think that's the mm -hmm. first expression for that's it. That's right. That's good. That, oh, and there was a, he talked, he talked briefly in a pub in 1952 or three or something about a uh, vampire personality. Oh, yeah. That'd be, that'd be like Gordon Melton, wouldn't it? <laughs> vampires. Oh. Um, little in joke there. Yeah, total um, in joke. Uh. <laughs> And and so you know, I leave Scientology, and I'm you know reading reading Cleckley, and that quite interested me. And mm. as these thoughts, you know, this is in the eighties, as these thoughts percolate through, I, I'm trying to go. Well, yeah, there are people who are like that. There are people, and, and for a while I called them dismissive people mm. because they're people who just put you down, and they, and then oh, I don't know, five five years ago or something, I decided. I read the literature. So I read Without Conscience by Robert Hare. I read Snakes in Suits, which he co-authored, uh, in which he revises some of his earlier ideas. Um, he's originally saying, well, psychopath is a word that says this is something you're born with, and sociopath is a word that means this is something society does to you. And then, which is fairly true, but he later on says, well, if you score from four to 30 on my checklist, you're a sociopath. And if you score from 30 to 40, you're a psychopath. So he, it becomes a spectrum. Mm. And I think we, you know, I question whether his checklist is, it could be, it's not a rigorous instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It requires a great deal of evaluation as, as to where you're going. And I started going, well, it's not, I don't really want to diagnose anybody. I, I want to, I'll say, what are the characteristics of people who are dangerous to us? And then I came upon this notion of human predators, you know, yep. and Donald Trump, who seems to be freak, coming up frequently in my conversation, he, the, the author of The Art of the Deal, who, for anyone who's watching doesn't know, wasn't Donald Trump, was a man called Tony Schwartz. He said that during their conversations for that book, um, Trump said that his father, Fred, had taught him there are two kinds of people. There are predators and there are prey. Yep. If you read, um, there's a book called Pimpology, which I don't really recommend, written by a man who was a pimp, and he says there are pimps and hoes. Those are the two kinds of people. And you get this, you know, I mean, Hubbard's into the two-terminal universe. Yeah. You know, two types of yeah. everything. Life's a bit more complicated than that. There are yeah. people who are not predators and not prey. Well, it's interesting because Hubbard himself also, remember, wrote a bulletin called Two Types of People. Remember? The black mm -hmm. hats and the white hats. Yeah. He got, he, yeah. he, he followed that model exactly. And it, it's the model of the neocons mm -hmm. that uh, Strauss taught in Chicago to, to uh, Rumsfeld and Cheney. That there are guys in the white hats and the guys in the black hats. Yeah. Well, no, that there is very small quantity of people, perhaps two percent, who are classifiably criminal psychopaths. They are 
utterly destructive people. Uh, 3% of men, 1% of women, it is said. Mm. Uh, Women make up by having more borderlines, you know, whatever (laughs) that is. Um, But you then get all of these other kinds of personality, the Machiavellian personality, the very devious people, the the narcissist, um, which is specifically the malignant narcissist. Yes. um, Which comes from Eric Fromm's book Heart of Man in, in 65. And Fromm makes, I think, a vital point about narcissism, and I track this a little bit further. And he says, oh, Freud's wrong. Calling these people narcissists is wrong because they, they don't love themselves. They don't love anybody. They don't know how to love. Yep. That's what's wrong with them, that they need adulation to feel that they even exist, to give them the sense of self, that, and they collapse if that's taken away from them. Yep. Um, vulnerable narcissism and all of that. And we talked about this before we started recording, that that we both come to this point, well, what about benign narcissists? Exactly. Exactly. What what Fromm says in in his Escape from Freedom in 1941, which is his book about the Nazis and how Nazism came about, and he lived through that, of course, Um, and he was a communist Jew in Germany, so he had to get out of there in 1933 rather quickly. Um, and he modified his views as, as he went on. But he says probably about 60% of people fail to develop a self. They are a pseudo-self. And they, they, well, what do you think I should order? Well, how do you think I should look? Well, mm-hmm. am I doing this right? Uh, we've got a new uh, BMW because the neighbours have a BMW. Uh, am I living up to the expectations what Freud would call the superego, mm. what I tend to call the inner policeman, this, this idea of, of not being fully whole and where we should mature into adulthood as whole selves capable of making decisions, capable of doing something, maybe 60% of people don't. And they become authoritarian followers. They become people who, because they cannot trust their own opinions and their own identity, Look to somebody else who you know, maybe paints everything gold or not mentioning any names. <coughs> Excuse me. And seek identity as part of a group, mm-hmm. as part of a following. Mm-hmm. Now, at its extreme, the benign narcissist, so many of our artists, so many of our performers are actually people who are hollow. David Bowie said that um, Major Tom was him that it, it is about his sense of isolation. And he said he's, he, he had no connection to his parents. He was an only child. And he desperately wanted adulation. He was very honest about this, very open about it. And so Ziggy and all Aladdin saying these characters he creates are this attempt. And I think that he matures. Yep. I think when you see him in later interviews, he, you know... Um, we we got to that that thing before about the the chance um, <clears throat> in the clown suit. Ah, yes, uh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. That's right. That's right. Which, which is a self observation. You know, yep. you told the story of you know, right. he's doing ashes to ashes in the movie with a little clown suit on, and some guy's walking his dog in front of the camera, and right. and then the, the the director says, "Don't you know who this is?" And he says, "Yes, I'm cunt in a clown suit." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Bowie tells the story. Which tells you that he's got over himself. Yeah. That he's understood. That's right. And the narcissism is gone. 
for me, the, the shift that needs to happen in society is for people to develop individuality, not to agree with one another and do what the boss tells them, and not to wreck anything or destroy anything, but to say, this is what I like, this is what I want, these are my preferences. So you have artists who seek to please other people and take adulation. Their work will never, probably never be any good or rarely ever be any good. And then you have artists who seek to please themselves, to, to, to reach their own tastes and preferences, and you can tell them. I mean, I was in Pasadena many years ago at the, what was then the Norton Simon mm -hmm. Gallery, which is one of my favorite galleries in the world. I've been there four or five times. And I was. Yeah, I, I, grew sure up, I grew up about five minutes from there. We went there a oh, couple wow. times. Yeah. So great, great. Just the great museum. The, so Norton Simon's own collection in there. It's one of the, I think, four collections there that, that he could just about still afford to buy Degas pastels and uh, little Cezanne paintings before he then starts the Southeast Asian collection because he can't afford it anymore. The prices have gone so crazy. Mm -hmm. He really had the eye, though. If you go to the Tate Gallery in London, most of the stuff in there is rubbish hmm. because it represents, oh, we bought the cheapest thing we could get by that artist. Whereas uh, Norton Simon, every piece is, is beautiful. It's, a, you know, in the, the Cambodian collection, that was the first time I'd seen Cambodia. But anyway, <laughs> there's a painting in there by um, John Singer Sargent, American painter. Um, and I was, I'm short-sighted. I hadn't got my glasses on. I was 40 yards away from it. And I, I immediately went, it's a sergeant. I know it's a sergeant. He's not a not first rank famous painter. And it's because of the movement, the shape, the yeah. color. He's a man who discovered himself. He's a man, you know, you, you can't mistake things for a Rembrandt or a Da Vinci. They 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 have it. If if he, there are two Da Vinci paintings, the Madonna of the Rocks in the Louvre, the Madonna of the Rocks in the National Gallery in London. The one in the National Gallery was painted by pupils. It's obvious when you see them, you know, you can see that, that one is a masterwork. These are people who have, you know, expressed their own selves. They've become individual. And as individuals, they might be quite difficult. Rembrandt was incredibly boastful. Mm -hmm. He knew he was brilliant. Um, Michael, Michelangelo, actually, they had to cut his um, leather clothes off him because he had not washed or changed his clothes for months by the time he died, you know. So I'm not necessarily saying they became saints and angels, <laughs> yeah, right. but they became themselves, and that should right. be the objective for all of us, not how well can I imitate David Bowie, but how can I become this person, which is me? What, what is the best of me? Yeah. And in doing that, we can shift that kind of 60% of people into a majority, possibly, where democracy would be possible, where people would vote. You know, I saw something coming from Israel, Israel's endless elections. You know, they seem to happen every two weeks. And a woman was coming out of the polling booth, and the journalist said, and who did you vote for? He said, oh, I voted for Netanyahu or whatever. And why did you vote for Netanyahu? Because my rabbi told me to. <laughs> It's not really democracy, is it? Not exactly the idea of it, no. But if you're dealing with people, but it's a tough call when you're dealing with people who are apparently incapable of individual thinking for some reason. I mean, according to the theory here. I think that's the thing that, that 
that um, you know there are two aspects of play, aren't there? Nature and nurture. Yeah, and I think because our nurture systems, our educational systems, are authoritarian, they're about obedience. Yeah, um, doing as you're told. That if kids were taught, yeah, I always come back to our friend RHLF's Intelligent Disobedience. Yep. A brilliant book. Everybody should read it. Very straightforward. Yep. And obvious. You know, that um, you know, he had somebody in one of his talks who who said, Oh, I've, I have an example of what you're talking about. And he was under the desk here and brought out a guide dog. Said, I'm training this guide dog. The guide dog has a blind person they have to be able to say no they have to be able to say you're going to walk into something stop yep. why don't we teach our children this assertiveness why don't we have a society where we can do what we've just done in fact where i said something that was irritating to you and you're able to come to me and we're able to talk about it i'm able to apologize and we're able to clarify what we mean now that is how community should work instead of people throwing rocks at each other and you know or, or bombing each other or blowing yeah, themselves up or, or what have you that and i think a lot of that is is to do with an educational system and and there are hundreds of really fantastic schools and teachers are possibly the most important people in our society and they are so undervalued and they're put they're made part of a machine you know, my two youngest boys who both thankfully out of school now, but the amount of times that in different schools, one after another, was I'd be talking about them getting an education and the teachers would be saying, no, they have to jump through hoops. And that was the expression that was used, jumping through hoops. And eventually I sat in a room with four teachers and a psych educational psychologist and said, when do they get an education? And there was silence. And it was like, um, you know, when Matthew Lipman, the great educationist, he quit his job teaching philosophy at Columbia because he said, by the time I get them, it's too late. Yeah. They're 18. It's too late. So I think that we can, uh, I have this wonderful thought that in a few years, we could actually change society all over the world. It's one of the, you know, one of the great virtue of YouTube that, mm. which now, you know, counts what 90% of education on, on the internet comes through this channel. I'm, I'm not tremendously pleased about the people who run it and, and their ideas about how the world should be, you know, monetizing things. And, you know, it, it seemed, I don't know if you get this, but most of, most of the ads that are on my channel seem to be trying to recruit people into some kind of cult thinking. And I'm going, I'm glad they spent their money on putting it on my channel because they're going to get less recruits. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, it's abundance or, 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 you know, do what Ken Wilber says or be mindful or, you know, oh, no. But I do think that we can sabotage a system, I think, by putting ideas, by helping kids recognize human predators. Um, yes. yes. By helping them see the techniques that are used and by teaching critical thinking, by, yep. by teaching ways of, of being able to tell whether you know, I use the Institute for Propaganda Analysis as system, which has just seven points in it. You can find it on Wikipedia. It was written in 1938. Um, I went to the great expert, Anthony Prakarnas, um, a few years ago and said, oh, I'm writing a piece about this. He, he was on the board at Open Minds and I'm writing a piece about this. Um, I'm, so I'm starting with the Institute for Propaganda Analysis. And I thought he'll come back and say, oh, that's so out of date. 
And he came back and he said, it's brilliant. <laughs> and they were closed down in World War II because people would see that Uncle Joe Stalin, you know, maybe wasn't quite the way to pitch this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, looking at those World War II posters, it's frightening. Our friend Mao and the nasty little <laughs> Japanese people, you know. Well, wow. If we teach kids these simple things about, you know, seeing that something's not right, I think we could change the world. And I think it could be done in one generation where... So one of the things that bothers me is that most of the people I talk to, you and I are sort of on the edge of what's called the counter-cult world. Mm. I think we're both more concerned really with helping people Mm -hmm. to think and be themselves rather than... You know, I'm so, I'm, I don't think either of us is fighting to destroy any group. We we have kind of exposed Scientology a little bit now and then, you know. Yeah. But the idea is to help the people That's who've right. been trapped in it, not That's to right. hurt them. But I, in the counter-cult field, there's so much of this infighting, so much of this um, pessimism. You know, these people are, oh, we're fighting a losing battle. You know, I don't feel that at all. I feel tremendously optimistic about the human future. I think we now do have the tools, the toolbox, and the means to use them. The only problem is distributing those things. Yeah, It's getting out to millions of people. And the obstacle to that is that we live in an authoritarian, predatory world um, where... You know, somebody who drives a, a Lamborghini into a swimming pool can get 15 million views. Yeah, exactly. Well, we definitely people are, very people are that stupid. You know? Spectatorish jackass world. That is true. That's definitely something that, uh, that that exists. I don't know that it's so different from every other world that's ever existed. I think we see it the way we see it, and we think it's unique and different from everything from earlier generations. And I just say that because I'm constantly surprised at how history echoes. And oh, I, uh, you know, I agree that, yeah. that and, and the tyranny we see and the, the jesterism, um, the it, it is human behavior is not that far different. Somebody right. slipping on a banana skin is is funny, um, right. to many people, pratfalls and all of that kind of thing. I was talking with uh, my friend Christian Sherko about Buster Keaton earlier, ah. you know, fantastic stuff, but I do think that. I do think that we've we've come to an understanding and maybe the, what is important is understanding that the only way forward is dem- democracy. Yeah. If we let people like Bolsonaro and Duterte, um, Modi, Abe, this, this host of or Putin, these awful people, if we let them run the world or if we allow the American and European plutocratic system, you know, those with power, those with wealth, you know, the... You know, how things are reversed. People tell me that there's a communist party in China. No, there isn't. There's a fascist party in China. It, this has got nothing to do with anything that's communal or... Right. Uh, which is not just, you know, I'm not a particular fan of Karl Marx, but I do think he was right that women shouldn't be oppressed. I do think he's right that everyone should have the vote. And I do think that w- we should be giving in to a community to, to make things better, the idea that, for example, we can not have a health system in the US, you don't have a health system that is for everyone. Here, we've had one 
since the late 1940s. And it's a really good thing because it means you don't develop diseases, incubate them and spread them. Right. Unfortunately, we are being run, our country is being run by an idiot who did all of the wrong things. So we have an incredible death toll from COVID because the, the sensible things that were done in Taiwan and South Korea were not done here. Right. Um, or here. But we, yeah. But if you don't have a health system, then poor people are going to get diseases and they're going to give them to the rich people. So you, you have to have a certain basic level of, of good sense here. And this yeah, idea I, that you would you would think that these kind of things would be more obvious. Hmm. You really would. It does seem that way, doesn't you, it? Yeah. yeah, I swear to God, you really would think that that would be that way. Um, but, you know, people are are what they are. I, I agree with you about the educational component. I think, I don't know about one generation because I think it would take two because I think it's going to take one generation just to get that implemented. Well, let's, the... let's talk about what a generation is. Let's be very exact. Oh, okay. Technically, was... a generation the generation is 30 years. Yeah, I was thinking about that. <laughs> I look at, okay, because I look so... at the worldwide education system and I look at my ideas mm -hmm. of how that could be improved. And I'm talking about things like, um, not getting rid of standardized testing, but the, cat, this, the sorting hat at the beginning of this whole thing is not there, and it really needs to be there. We try to crunch every kid into one mold. That's wrong, that, because we have you, you could easily justify at least two molds, a vocational aspect or a vocational uh, at, you know, sort of direction of training versus a more intellectual or academic role or or move forward and i'm not talking about sorting on iq i'm talking about sorting on child's interest proclivities activities you know things they're good at stuff like that you gotta you gotta make decisions there and i think more decision making could be made that might customize or tailor excuse me our education for the kid and how the kid learns and what the kid's good at and is interested in and is proficient at and, you know, and I think you can, I think there are ways and means of, of finding out or developing those skills and, and, and again, sorting more properly so that people are, are living the life they actually want to lead <laughs> more, you know, through education, it actually empowers them to live that life, carry out those skills, do those things they want to do. You know, because there are people who really enjoy the physical labor and the arts and the this and the that. And there are other people who are really into the intellectual side of life and they let, give me the numbers. I just want the numbers. I, I just want to play with numbers all day. I get joy from numbers. And you go, good, there you go. There's the numbers. You go have fun. You know, whereas the guy who's more interested in fixing the cars because he really likes engineering and mechanical things, you, you, you know, they get a different sort because they're, they're different kinds of learners doing different kinds of tasks. You know, and so yeah, you have of to have course. a base. You yeah. have to have a base education of reading, writing, arithmetic, and all that. But, but you have to customize too. And I, I that that alone would be would be huge if we could then add on top of that a component of critical thinking and and humility and and teaching about you know the way of life with predators. Oh my God, that would be awesome, awesome. You know, and I I think I agree with you, and I think so, so much of we, we have to go back to the beginning. You know, we were saying with critical thinking, the idea is to question everything. Yeah. And, and 
And our educational system, I, I got into this, you know, and um, it fascinated me. Where did universal education come from? It was first in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the 1760s, and it collapsed. They, they tried to educate everybody. The next time is in Prussia. Okay. And um, it's, uh, there are two Humboldt brothers, and one of them is where Darwin comes from. That, that he is a huge fan of Alexander von Humboldt, after whom there are more plants, animals, rivers, mountains named than any other individual, because he's the man that opened up the natural world uh, at the end of the 18th century. But his brother, Willem, is commissioned by the King of Prussia to set up an education system because the Prussians had been beaten by Napoleon at the Battle of Jena. And they were pissed off. So they set up a system which is run from, I think, 1806 till now. And the idea was you need to train soldiers. People have to be obedient. That's what school is for. In this country, universal education, I think, is the 1870s. And the idea is women need to work in factories, so the children have to be somewhere. And then the middle level is we need civil servants to tell the Indians and those people in the subcontinent what to do. And then you get the Boy Scouts, which is we need soldiers. You know, that, that is absolutely where Baden-Powell, I think that's how he pronounced his name, got the idea from. And the, the chapter on masturbation, which causes all mental illness, according to Baden-Powell, was taken out of scouting for boys. And, and in the new, new later traditions, it's back in there. And I didn't know that. Did you know that masturbation is the cause of all mental illnesses? I not yeah, only did not know funny. that, but in my scouting experience, that absolutely was not in the Boy Scout manual or handbook. So yeah, it, I, it I will swear original... on a stack of Dianetics books. Nobody ever told me that when I was a kid. Yeah, uh, fascinating. It's a, fascinating. It, it's a it's a it's one page in there, and you must resist the temptation and have a cold shower immediately if you have thoughts like that, because otherwise your mind will go soft. Wow, and that's what will happen to you. In America, the education system, I think the 1880s, is to homogenize the population because you've mm -hmm. got so many disparate groups. Yeah, well, what's a con and I mean, you're talking about melt that whole melting pot thing. I mean, and, and truly a social problem. Let's not make any mistake. That was an issue. I don't know no, that it, this was the perfect solution to it. <laughs> it wasn't a solution means. to it. We all know that there are Italian Americans, African Americans, <laughs> yeah, Greek yeah. Americans, those those societies never did, you know, amalgamate. And you've got the Russian mafia now as well. Yeah. In Massachusetts, the literacy level prior to universal education has never been matched since that it was forced. That doesn't poverty. surprise me. That doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I'm not, again, I'm not suggesting that the solution was a solution. I'm just suggesting that the problem exists. You know, it's, it's a, yeah, it, is a, it is a problem, but it still hasn't been resolved. We're still a nation of over 300 million people, this country, United States, over an incredibly large, you know, geographical area. And we're pretty much about, it, depending on how you estimate it, seven to 10 different countries. <laughs> uh, there's a book called American Nations, which estimates yep. 11. Yep, that's right. That's right. And um, I, I think that that's probably about right. Yeah. And and a division now of half the population against the other half. Um, yeah, we do have just, we do have that. 
We do have that. And although I, I have I to, although I got it, I got to pipe up for a second there because I was just thinking about this this morning. You know, I can walk outside and go take a walk, which I do often, pass people on the trail, 100% smile, wave, get along great, see people in conversation, never had an angry word or even angry face at anybody in the real world that I interact with. But online, it's like a battle zone. <laughs> You're like, how, what, how, what? And then you, you have to realize that that this is really just a sliver of the population. And, and the experience when you go out is just as real, if not more so. And I just put that out there as a little word of encouragement because it's, it, it seems like half the world is against half the world. I don't know that that's actually true. Well, I mean, in, yeah, uh, I don't think it is. I think that, that as, as with any such situation, there are a small percentage of people yeah. who belong to certain organizations <laughs> that begin with Ks and letters like that. That's right. Uh, that, that have become extreme in the way they behave, and that's, that's caused. But I, I think that in, in going into the education system, my point is that we yeah. need to look at why are we doing this? Yes. And we're doing this to make people pro-social. We're doing this to make people, to get people so they'll be able to live, uh, pursue, they'll be able to pursue life in life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Yep. But th this is what it's about. It's not about gross national product. It's not about enslaving the population. Yep. It's about getting the best for society and, and getting a society that is, you know, rich in its humanity. Yeah. And I would say that there are so many things that would be simple to change in the education system. We'll be talking forever, so I'm going to just say them very quickly. Um, the first is um, Matthew Walker, a professor at uh, Berkeley in neuroscience and sleep medicine. Uh, his book, Why We Sleep, points out that we now know with no doubt that 30% of the population or thereabouts have a later clock. Oh, right. And we know that if you don't sleep properly, and there's no drug that can get you to do this, if you don't sleep properly, if you don't get enough deep sleep, enough REM sleep, and the, the other two cycles of sleep, then you will be grumpy. Um, your concentration will be poor. Your memory will be poor. And it's been demonstrated in schools since the 1980s. If you force kids to go to school too early, they will be more aggressive. Yep. They will learn less. Yep. And you will therefore have a worse society. So point number one is let kids sleep. What's more, he points out, because that they come home from school before their parents do, that's when the trouble happens. So send them to school later. Number one. Number two. Every two years, the PISA tables, uh, I think 150 countries now uh, are involved in PISA tables. These check for literacy and numeracy around the world every two years. And Scandinavia always comes top in literacy. Uh, hmm. Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark. And there are some weird things in their system. They don't start teaching reading and writing until you're seven. And I would say that part of the brain, Wernicke's and Broca's area, if we get into it, motor cortex, aren't actually developed enough in most people to learn to read and write until they're seven. And what, so what happens is 
that parts of the brain are commandeered, what's called neuroplasticity, which are not actually ready, and you will produce what is called functional illiteracy in many people. They can read what's on the page, but they've got no idea what it means. And this is massive. There's a huge amount of people. So I will certainly attest to, to that as, as somebody who has who did educate people, even if it was in a Scientology context, for literally decades of classroom experience, I can speak to a wide range. And this is in a Scientology self-selected group where the people are already actually, by necessity, generally on the intelligent side. You don't have a bunch of dunces yeah. in Scientology. I'm just telling you, you don't. They filter, they they self-select out of there pretty quick because the words are big and they're hard to read. And and, and so, they haven't got enough money to pay for the course. Yeah, and the money, exactly. So so you kind of have a better, you know, not a, a better class. You're going to have a higher level of average intelligence, I'm going to say. I'm just going to go out and I'm just going to say that. But even then, you better believe I was teaching people grammar and the basics of literacy every other week. A yeah. Grammar and small common words were the biggest thing. And it, despite Hubbard's extreme views on every word has to be understood to every definition, I'm just telling you, there are people who did not know what the, how to correctly use the word and, much less as. You know, so. the, the conjunction and the preposition were the most difficult areas to get over. Yeah. But, but this is a joining word. Yes. <laughs> negative in the case of but or yet, and, you know, neutral in the case of and. That's this right. is a preposition, you know, that I too sat there. Again, I can remember this one particular woman who seemed perfectly intelligent, but every time we sat down, she couldn't define the word of. And it would be. It would be, eventually she got round it. She declared herself super literate. So she <laughs> <laughs> then they found that she'd faked all of the statistics. That of course got she this, did. You know, and then on we went. But functional literacy, forcing kids to do stuff yep. before they're ready, making education boring uh, rather than being a game, rather than being an adventure. Mm. The Scandinavians have a few other things they've got going. One of them is they only do one exam in the whole of that time in school in the entire just time one. yeah just one at the end wow i hope they, they pass, pass a certificate at the end <laughs> at the end of their schooling they're the most literate people in the world oh good point no good point i i, I can't argue with those mm. statistics if the if that's the way it is and then they good, also good have a them. higher per capita I, income how do they how do they deal with the if I might ask and if you know because I, I I think to myself right away I was picking up reading really quick with comprehension I was I was just that kid Yeah what do they do with the quick learners cuz I would it would have been torture for me to wait until I was 7 years old oh, I don't learning. think they're going to stop you from from learning the point is that they don't inflict it upon you and, until Okay um okay and that we had some Swedish teachers who came over here and they were really horrified by our schools. A, because we have high wire fencing around them all, mm. because we had a school shooting. Mm -hmm. Don't blame. I get it. No, I get it. Unlike America, we don't have one every other day, which is, you know, <sighs> so we have all these high wire things and it, it makes you think you're in a prison. Mm -hmm. The second thing was that we've got all these things hanging from the ceiling and all of these bright things on the wall. And the Swedish teachers are going, oh, this is really. Scandinavian schools, half of the syllabus is taught outdoors. 
Oh, really? Cold places, but they spend half of the day outside. So you've got a, a whole different. That's oh, a whole different approach. Oh, wow. What, lear- what learning is. Okay. Um, okay. If you then say, well, why do we teach the subjects we teach? And, you know, I would say that, that, that I agree with you that, you know, you should have basic skills. I, I'm, I'm not going to name any names here. A, a few months ago, I was asked to connect a television set to an aerial. And I drilled a hole in the wall and I, I put the coaxial cable in and I made the connection. I was astonished that the man who was asking me, who had been a university lecturer, did not understand how to do this. That's what I'm talking about with that sorting hat, man. That's exactly what I'm talking about is you got, you got people who think this way and you got people who think this way. It's just, it's but there. You, you can test for this. I know you can. You know, I know you. But can. I think that the the basics, the basic skills. I, I as a kid, you know, my my dad was actually a mechanical engineer, but but he didn't seem to have any practical skills apart from right. he was brilliant in the garden. He could grow anything, right. but you know, if he put paint on it, would dribble. You know. <laughs> well, I so, see. I I happen to think since this is coming up as a topic. That all of the basic life skills should be part of our formal education. Exactly. You you know, if you come out of school, you can't balance a checkbook. Fuck you, right? If you come out of school, you don't know how to paint a wall. What? I mean, these are things you should definitely learn how to do. Taking a wheel off a car. Yes. You know, know, here's how your car works, you know. But again, you're going to have people who get really into that, going to be super specialized in that kind of thing. And then you have people who are just going to want to understand the basics, and that's where they're at. And you go, good, here's the basics of it so that when the car is making weird noises or black smoke comes out, you don't change the tire. You know, like you you have some idea that maybe that's being caused by a lack of oil or something like that. You get rudimentary understanding of things that are... You've got a phone and you can call somebody. Yeah, and these are the kind of things that you're teaching kids where it is impossible for them to raise their hand and go, when am I ever going to use this? Because it, it's obvious by the very nature of the lesson that it's 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 a life lesson, you know. Like those yeah. kind of, I think all those kind of skills should absolutely be part of the picture. And then let's look at the elephant in the room. Mm. What about teaching kids about relationship? How to have a conversation with somebody? How to resolve an argument with somebody in the way that that we've just done at the beginning Uh, of this where uh. you know we're not shouting at each other or throwing anything we we have care and concern for each other and therefore it becomes a responsibility for us to share our knowledge and i've just there given the four points which are eric Fromm's definition of love Ah. care concern responsibility and knowledge why don't we teach our kids about that and you know, it's 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 vital knowing what a watershed is, obviously. Being able to do a quadratic equation, knowing that Magna Carta was signed in 1215 at Runnymede. You know, these are really important life lessons. <laughs> but the idea that when you and your spouse are not talking to each other anymore because nobody taught you anything, Right. About communication. I mean, it's the, the attractive bullshit in Scientology. You're going to be taught about communication. You're actually going to be taught to stare at somebody. Exactly. To stare until they submit to you. That's right. And looking at the way that Ron Hubbard and Mary Sue Hubbard shouted at each other and all of that, it, it really didn't work very well. But to, to teach tolerance, um, 
One of the things that really deeply concerns me is, is the division in society over Islam that is, is taking place. Mm. Um, I've read tens of Sufi and Islam books over the years. I'm fascinated by this culture which developed so much more rapidly than the Christian culture. Mm. And I think we should, I think history is the core subject, I really do, understanding mm -hmm. the past, the memory of humanity. So we should be teaching our children that about the translation movement in Islam, which in the ninth century sought to collect all the wisdom of the world. It gave us algebra. Right. It was the first place that alcohol was refined, though they don't drink it. It was to make perfume. Quarantine comes from there. The idea of optical surgery. They were performing complex optical surgery. And these things, washing, saponification, the making of soap, first happened in the Arab countries. That To understand how culture was affected, that, that the, the Crusaders learned how to wash. They didn't smell as bad. Um, they learned manners. They learned to be vaguely polite to each other. And to say then, let's move forward to the end of the Ottoman Empire in 1918, Lawrence of Arabia, all that good stuff, where the Arabian countries are absolutely destroyed. They are not given any freedom then. You know, in the Lebanon, only Christians were allowed to vote under the French mandate. Egypt was ruled by the British. Cruel, harsh and awful things were done. And then you go, well, these people are annoyed with us. It's not because of the Prophet Muhammad that they're annoyed with us. Right. It's because of real things that happened. Right. And understanding the value that their culture brought and saying it's a part of evolution. We will hopefully, all of us, evolve away from some of these kind of Bronze Age ideas that, that seem to be so popular, yes. without getting into any detail. We'll hopefully evolve to a point where we respect other people's right to have an opinion and we tolerate them as long as they're not intolerant, as long as their beliefs are not leading them to do devastating and harmful things to others. You know, and that's, those... and that's the, and that's the real pivot point. That's the real, that's the real component of contention is hitting up against that. And that's why we need diplomacy and we need strong diplomats, not, you know, uh, appointed lackeys and, and, and uh, the person who donated to your campaign most, Mr. President, gets to be the ambassador to Arabia or some bullshit. I mean, we I, I, and I'm Tony I'm, Blair gets to be the ambas peace ambassador to the Middle East. Yeah, oh, come on. Exactly. He started the Gulf War. You know? Exactly. Right. Might as well appoint Dick Cheney as peace ambassador mm. to, to Iraq. So completely right. Like I we, we're you know, we exaggerate for effect, but but there is a problem here. And and there are there are there are layers and layers of problems to this, but I think we're talking uh, on the right points of, of education and the fact that education needs to meet higher standards than it's meeting right now. But I wanted to speak to the to the very thing the thing you brought at the, the very beginning, which is really important to this, which is what is the purpose of the activity, and if the purpose of the activity is compliance and conformity, and that seems to be the well acknowledged basic theme or purpose of the activity, then you can expect that you're not going to get the result of well-educated individuals who are prepared for life and an independent existence, because 
individuals and independent don't go along with the idea of conformity and compliance. No. They're the exact polar opposites of these things. And this is a huge problem. And I'm pointing out this, this pillar of, of problem. I mean, this is, a, this is a pillar of our foundation, of our society, right, is education. So this is not a small thing, and it has everything to do with why people fall into cults and how culty crap stuff. You know, this is not some political rant. This is, this is it has everything to do with our subject. And yes, the same it, it way— It's what prepares people to become part of, of, of such groups. Exactly. I, then, and if kids were being taught— to assert themselves, if they were being taught their opinion mattered, if every morning they woke up and bounced out of bed longing to go to school, and I had a child you know, who actually was like that, my youngest child till he was nine years old, he loved school, and then he got that teacher. Yeah, there you go. And after that, there was, there was no cure for it. But school should be great. School exactly. should be a place, you know, it's an adventure. I mean, the work of Sir Ken Robinson, um, uh, the elements in creative uh, schooling. This shows that there are hundreds of schools. There's, there's one school where they 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 kind of um, surveyed the kids to find out what they wanted to do, and they said, "Well, we'd like to race a car in the Indy 500." And you go, "Oh yeah, really?" They did. They built their own car, and their attendance went so that the kids were getting in early in the morning, staying in the evening, going in over the weekend. And they're doing all of their subjects because. They'd understood how their subjects related to this, what's called mind mapping, Tony nice. Buzan's idea, that it makes sense. If, you know, I want to go and be a car mechanic, why do I need to study equations? Well, you might find that actually this is useful. And that that point that that education has become so remote, it, it's like, you know, Jonathan Swift, the, the rock that floats in the sky, and all of the intellectuals have conversations, and there are men with bladders who have to hit them on the head to wake them up as they drift off. Oh, yes. Death. Yes, I remember that. You know, That's right. That's right. I think most, most of the things you need to understand are in that book, actually, and the Ted Danson movie of Gulliver's Travels is, is very accurate. So everybody should go, and it's absolutely hilarious as well. But it shows how foolish we become, and I think we've forgotten I think our society has forgotten what it's meant to be doing. You know, that it, it's all this grim struggle to pay back all the money that the bankers spent on themselves. You know, the hedge fund managers, these, you know, speaking of predatory human beings. Yeah, exactly. Robert Hare said, you know, if you want to see sociopaths, go to Wall Street. You know? I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. And, it, you know, and it and it does raise the good question and the honest question of, uh, you know, how many of us are electing psychopaths? But then again, how many people who aren't psychopaths are trying to get elected? Mm. You know, it's like it's one and the other. I mean, both of these things are are a problem to this. You know, it's like we need also, you know, to change maybe some of the uh, aspects of our leadership model. But you know, this is we this do. is basically, uh, you know, how we should rewrite the world. Uh, you know, two point I did. I wanted to make one. I wanted to make one final point before we wrap up here because I know we're going to have to move toward wrapping up in a minute. And I wanted to. I wanted to say this as part of this conversation about predators and the use of, and talking about things in a in a paradigm of predators, human predators. Right. We brought up narcissism as a as a point with benign and and non benign 
or uh, you know, uh, uh, malignant. Malignant. That's the word. I was malignant. thinking malfeasance. Yeah, yeah malignant. Right. Um, the the problem that I've seen, and I've railed against this for a while now, and I am getting a hundred percent on the train. You are, you know, already conducting out the out the door, which mm-hmm. is. I'm I am not using or trying to avoid unless I'm being very precise um, the use of diagnostic labels out of psychiatry or psychology to describe social phenomena or people that we see. We are pathologizing a bit too much with this. And and when it, and when these words hit the common, you know, uh, discourse, the common conversation and hit on social media and Twitter immediately what happens it just as these these terms get watered down, they're not understood. They are complicated, multi-layered, contentious words. The word narcissism is 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 a concept that is understood in different ways in different places on different subjects. And when you go using it in social media as an insult, you know you're actually saying things you don't totally understand. Or you, or you have to dumb it down to your simplistic idea of what it is, and that's not really what it is. And so I, I'm only harping on this because I really, I, I think it's a, I think we're doing everybody a favor um, by getting rid of that kind of dialogue or those that kind of vocabulary and leave that vocabulary to the diagnostic people and to the professionals who actually do get all the nuance of it. We don't have to go there to insult people. Instead, we can use more common and easily understood language like human predator. Everybody immediately gets exactly what you're talking about when you say that. Yeah, and, you don't, and, you know, and by, by, by saying it's, it's not, um, you know, whether we, we're going to lock this person in an institution or, or try and give them therapy or, right. or whatever. Uh, I mean, under New Labour, Tony Blair was actually for gene testing because of this idea that that there are um, particular genetic biases which will turn to psychopathy. And so you could label a kid from the age of three and ruin their lives. Yeah, that's the worst possible idea. Really not a great idea. The thing is to provide an environment in which even people who are born with such genes or brain dispositions, you know, the uh, deficiency in the paralimbic system, um, where the impulsive part of the brain and thinking part of the brain are not, the the channel between them is not quite as thick as it ought to be. There's Mm -hmm. not enough connection. That you create a society that, that, and this has been shown, that, that, that through compassion and understanding, those traits are less likely to develop. James Fallon uh, there's psychopath inside. He is a, a, a brain scientist who runs two gene companies who, seeing a, a randomized scan of his own brain, said, oh, he, this is somebody who's got the psychopathic thing, and who is it? And his assistant went, <clears throat> it's you. <laughs> and he realized all his life he'd thought that everything's genetic, everything's genetic. You know, he's in his 50s, and he suddenly finds this thing out. And he says, my mother noticed. My mother, when I was two years old, she realized that I had this, this negativity, this, you know, this, one, this desire to play pranks on people and hurt people. And she nurtured me in such a way that even though I am difficult company at times, you know, if, he says, you know, if, if some other professor goes out with him, they will end up dancing naked on the table because he thinks that's funny. He took his brother 
on a safari to the Marburg Caves in Kenya. And it was only when his brother got home and looked at Marburg that he realised this is where Ebola had come from. You know, they're just nasty in certain ways, but he doesn't kill people. And it shows that the same way of treating our prisons are ways of making people exactly predators exactly of training them in criminality that's right and, and when you treat people in that way that's the consequence you'll get so it all fits together by recognizing somebody as a predator i'm not suggesting any kind of witch hunt to to destroy these people because they'll be running it within a exactly. week exactly charge of it yes. and we'll be the ones being hunted that's right i'm saying if we can recognize them and not put them in positions of authority above us. So I do believe, and I know that um, at Harvard Medical School, there's a psychiatrist there, I was very pleased to find, who's also suggested all politicians, anybody applying for political office, should do the hair psychopathy checklist revised. Because although it is an imperfect instrument, and although highly intelligent people will be able to fool it, the reality is that Human predators are, on average, no more intelligent than anybody else, and at least some of the more stupid ones. And I'm not naming any names here about people who like everything to be gold, uh, like King Midas, for example, um, or like their name on everything. But people who are that stupid won't pass this test. And even if we could just drop down the number of predators in power and really advance... Yeah. yeah, one of the things that astonished me, I was reading years and years ago, I was reading about the Plains uh, peoples, the Lakota particularly, mm -hmm. and found that they had, and the Cheyenne as well, the mark in their society of a great person is generosity. And when you go up to the northern tribes like Tlingit, uh, up around um, Aleutian Islands and Vancouver, that, then it gets to be pathological. They start giving everything away. But if you are the person who killed the most buffalo in a hunt, you're expected to give them all away. Huh. And this is so, of course, Europeans would go into reservations and get all the horses and all the, they'd be given these things because they'd understood this thing. That bias in our culture towards narcissism, or let's just call it what it is selfishness. Yeah. You know, um, that bias towards greed, avarice you know, cupidity, there's a good word. This is this is not good for us. Exactly. Uh, we should be looking at, you know, what is good behaviour and how do you do it and how do you get people to behave in a, a humane way towards each other? And we're not instead. And in politics, I hate this. So many people tell me, oh, politicians, how can you tell if they're lying, their lips are moving? Politicians are all corrupt. You know, they have a power gene. There's something wrong with them. They're all narcissists. That's not my experience of life. My experience of life is that most of the people who go into politics genuinely want to help people. And most of the people who go into politics are corrupted by the political system. Yes, I, th I do believe that there is a systemic corruption process that occurs in politics that is almost... You, you have to, the exceptions are so few as to be non-existent. I mean, you have to be a saint, an anointed saint to get to the level of DC politics or, you know, yeah. um, or I guess, I, I don't know what the equivalent, I guess, parliamentary level in the UK. Yeah, that's right. You yeah. know, there's no way you're going to get to that level without having shaken some hands, made some deals and done some things that you really never wanted to do getting into that field in the first place. 
But I do think that in Western Europe, we have far less corrupt political I, Yeah, systems. and even as bad as it is, it's still worse in the other places. That's right. That's right. And, and it shows that pro progress can be made. I think the Germans, for example, uh, have a pretty good system. Occasionally, like in Italy, you've got Berlusconi, and how on earth a scumbag like Berlusconi ever got into power and then maintained it, it's hard to know. And we are seeing problems with the populist movements all over the place. Mm -hmm. But the Germans, you know, they have the most modern system because they had to make a new system in the late 1940s. They had mm -hmm. to start again. And I think, um, you know, when you're stuck with, with something that's telling you you've got to arm bears or, or whatever it is the US Constitution says, um, Proudhon, who was one of the original anarchists, he was in the French Assembly in the 1840s, and um, he he voted against a constitution. And his friends said to him, how could you do that? And he said, every generation needs to make its own constitution. We should not be setting rules for everybody in the future. And you then get to the movie K-Pax, where um, <laughs> the alien character says, you don't need laws. Everybody knows what's right and wrong. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, as if. <laughs> but, but there is such a truth in it that you see books of law that, you know, you know the, the, the law in this country fill, and in the U.S. fills up what? Oh, absolutely. It's 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 5, thousand volumes. And you're going, it's wrong to kill people. Yeah. It's wrong to burn places down. It's wrong to steal things, you know. And... You know, it, it's just become elaborately crazy. And I think a, a, a huge part of a problem is within our corrupt justice systems. And a part of the corruption is the immense amount of money. You know, if, if I go, if somebody's going to clean my house here, they're going to charge me £12 an hour. If they're going to give me legal advice, they're going to charge me £200 an hour. Now, my cleaner is more intelligent than my lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great book by David Graeber called Bullshit Jobs, which explains that most of the work in this world is just not contributing. And there was an analysis done of the value of work, which said that actually the least valuable people in society are accountants. Oh, my God, that's hilarious. In terms of value for money. For, for money, yeah. Not, not as human beings, obviously. No, no, let's no, shoot no. them all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay, got. Uh, okay, let's wrap up. Yeah. Let's go ahead and wrap up. I, I think we've had a great discussion here. Um, yeah, we won't be lining any accountants up on the wall or anything. Don't worry out there. No. You know, it's all no, good. It's, it's, it's a Monty Python sketch where Michael Palin goes along and he wants to be a lion tamer, and he's actually an accountant, and then he finds out that lions aren't the creatures that burrow little holes in their skirting. You know, oh. and uh, they they continued to make jokes about accountants, which is, uh, but we need we need we mean no harm, no accountants were harmed. <laughs> no were harmed in the making of this podcast. Excellent. All right, guys. Well, John, thank you very much for joining me for for some conversation here, and uh, I hope everybody out there found our our discussion at least entertaining, if not informative and educational in some fashion or another. But I think we've I think we clicked all the boxes on that one. So. Yeah, and uh, if you go to, we, we have a website to opening our minds and you can get a free poster, which in just one page gives you the characteristics of a human predator and you can laminate it and stick it on your refrigerator. Yep. And I'm, I'm happy to say it was a, a, a US school teacher who asked us to make this poster. So, you know, um, 
spread it out and about. It won't cost you anything. And if you do want to spend some money, buy a copy of my book, Opening Our Minds, and you'll see more of, of this discussion and, and why you know, we have come to these conclusions in our years and years <laughs> of study of, of these problems. Exactly, so, exactly. Thanks, so, thanks it, so much, Chris. Always yeah. a real pleasure. Excellent. Yeah, it's all related, folks. And, um, and of course, if you will, uh, you know, think about it, support the channel. It's always appreciated. Mm -hmm. And uh, we will see you guys next week. All right. Bye-bye. Yes. Thanks so much.